Welcome back to The Periphery. This week, we talked to Jonas Metzger, a PhD in economics, but more importantly, and more interestingly to us, a major advocate, uh, entrepreneur, essentially, in smart contracts, which is the subject of our episode today. In particular, he runs a project called Open Contracts, and he's trying to find new ways to create forms of collective action using a powerful technology, blockchain, that we've discussed on this podcast before, to unite and connect people in ways that are both secure, private, and reliable. And so we talked to him this week, and we had a fascinating conversation with him. It was quite long as well. We would have kept going. (laughs) I had to cut us off, in fact, (laughs) which is honestly, overall, I find myself in often. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he just had a lot to say, both on the technical side, on the policy side, on the economic side of blockchain. So what did you guys think about all the applications that he was thinking of and the method that he was going through for applying this technology? I think, first and foremost, his excitement was broadly applied to contracts. And I think he mentioned how it was the first innovation contracts in forever. And that's like kind of the underlying thrust of this. Uh, How do we contract with each other and enter agreements? Originally, I wanted to do economics because that was like, when I had to decide what I want to be with my life in high school, that was after the financial crisis, was still felt very present. And it felt like economists are the most important decision makers, you know, Mm -hmm. right now. And (laughs) everything that happens right now feels like forever as a kid. So, so I knew I wanted to do something like that. And then the AI revolution happened. I'm like, wow, this is the most important thing ever. So I better pay attention to this, right? And now we have this new technology that is not even that new anymore, actually. And it has some very, very unique things to it that we haven't seen before. Kind of like the, own, the first innovation in the concept of contracts. And I think something that really struck me is, you know, we, we talked about the question, the Peter Till question, when he mentioned at the conference we went to that he was the keynote speaker, that a, a blockchain is libertarian and AI is communist. And to my surprise, in fact, Jonas kind of endorsed that that message in the sense that from the perspective of, you know, who gains the most? <laughs> Communists. I think there's very much truth to that. I, I, I very much agree with that. Um, I, I wouldn't put it like, of course, you can use AI in a way that is empowering, liberating. But what he's referring there to is the fact like who is benefiting the most from the technology, comparatively speaking. And those are people who have access to huge amounts of data. In hindsight, I can kind of see the truth to it in the sense that AI is kind of fundamentally a centralizing force. You know, what makes AI good? centralizing data, having as much data as possible from one actor who can then apply it to all these different realms of social activity, which is exactly the reason we're seeing so much activity in antitrust. These companies have become, you know, whatever they look like, they're fundamentally data companies. That's how they make their bread and butter. And they're continually innovating in ways that gain and gain and acquire more data and extracts more information about us, much to our benefit, but also to, you know, centralizing concern. Now, they're very powerful to begin with, by definition, right? You've got the Chinese state, but you've also got Google and Facebook, right? I mean, those are not necessarily communist institutions, so I would disagree with that. But centralizing. It's a centralized institution, right? And AI is a centralizing force. If you have double amount of data, you can be much better at this. And so I think he's speaking to some truth there. And blockchain does have this unique set of properties that makes it very attractive to people at the periphery of the markets, really. That was one of the first things that struck me was the innovative aspect of contracts and just kind of uh, this relationship between blockchain that is at least presented as something more inherently decentralized, even though he kind of did undermine that take as well. He, he had this kind of very bedrock understanding of blockchain, which was it's just the same copies of code running on different computers. Ultimately, what they are is just in permissionless meaning anyone can join, network of 
computers running open source code and talking to each other. And all of them run the same code. And the code is basically verifying that everyone agrees about which blockchain is the right one. And they're automatically enforcing certain rules. Like nobody can send a Bitcoin that they don't own or an Ethereum coin. And then of course, every contract that you write, those rules will be automatically enforced. And basically if they see a new incoming transaction, they will automatically reject anything that violates the rules. And so if you have, if you set up the network in the right way, you can be assured that as long as a majority or like a large enough number of, of nodes follow the rules of the protocol, then it can sustain any type of attack by either the a person that has a contract or that wants to be a miner and stuff. Um, and basically they can't break the rules. And so this is powerful because it's a highly functioning institution. I mean, there's no wrong transaction in the whole history of the blockchain, right? By definition. And you have access to that institution everywhere in the world immediately. And that is what enables all the different applications that we build on the top of having that same code. And so that's why he seemed attractive to the communist libertarian dichotomy that Thiel presented. <laughs> Arguably, there is some merit there, even though, even though we reject it as like so political, <laughs> but maybe not communist, but centralizing, because he ultimately said, while both technologies are empowering, who is the recipient of the power that the technology is creating? And with blockchain, it's anyone who has access to a machine that can process the code for a specific contract. Uh, and for AI, obviously, you know, it's in the corporate structure that enables massive collections of data and all the organization and development that's required to build the systems. You know, it made me think twice again about what we see, fr frankly, on the right, which is like villainizing AI in certain ways. But at the same time, we should consider who's receiving the power that this technology is creating. Yeah. And like, who can use it? I think that our conversation with him and also just like his project open contracts is interesting because it's not just about, I mean, when you talk about blockchain and crypto, it's like, it's a secure way to hold your money. Maybe it allows you to not rely on certain institutions that historically like haven't been your friend, but also it, he's like opening a door to creating contracts. You don't have to be a techie to have crypto and you don't have to be a lawyer, write your own contract and enter into a contract in theory, which I think we agree with in part. And also have like some hesitations about that idea, but I think that the idea is really enticing. Okay, let's get into it because he presented a really interesting idea about different applications of blockchain. And among those different applications was an idea that in the moment I was 100% down for it. However, sorry, Jonas, I'm going to <laughs> I have, I have a lot of questions and considerations <laughs> about how we can use smart contracts to overcome problems associated with particularly climate change or just weather. He has this example of a contract, which he can explain. Most people in low-income countries work in agriculture, right? And everyone who works in agriculture needs to be insured against weather risk. They would drastically benefit from it. Like what happens if you're a farmer and it just doesn't rain for a whole summer? You are homeless. You have to sell everything you own and your family is homeless. So you would love to insure against that risk. You would love to put aside some of the capital you have to buy an insurance policy. And the cool thing about weather is it's, it's not that correlated across different places, right? You can easily imagine people making a lot of money by just insuring some farmers. Some of them will always have a, like a damage, others won't, and so you'll make some money. So it's a great, great problem to solve, but it's not solved yet. Why can't people in low-income countries get an insurance? In many places, you don't have a legal system that would allow you to actually do something if the insurance says, I'm not going to pay. And I, I've not gotten my payouts for insurances. I, I had a phone insurance. I dropped my phone. It, it was meant to cover dropping your phone, right? I didn't get paid. And then I, mean, I faced a health care insurance. You know, yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> but um, 
That's what they said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so, so, so what can I do in that situation? I could sue them. I live in a country with a well-functioning legal system. I could sue them, but I didn't because it's difficult. It's risky. There's a lot of uncertainty involved in the process. I've never done it before. I don't know how to do it, right? And it's just the phone, so I didn't care. <laughs> exactly. Now I know. Now I have friends. So right? you were expensive and risky. <laughs> By that. High cost. Exactly. And now, now imagine you're in a place where you don't have any basically repercussions and you'd be homeless otherwise, right? It sucks. And now here comes the special property of smart contracts. The first one is basically the person who is entering an agreement with you can't walk back, basically. The, the, the special property that we're talking about here is their self-enforcing contracts. And it, fundamentally, it was replacing insurance or AIG's role or an insurance company's role in doling out insurance claims. And in the moment, I, I thought it was really interesting, but in hindsight, I still had a lot of questions. Like, yes, it sounds like we'll be able to have a new form of contracts such that there's a guarantee that there will be a payoff or an execution such that you can garner more trust in entering that actual contract. But at the same time, it seems like there's this risk of ushering a surveillance society to effectively implement those contracts with the weather example in particular. It's not as simple as determining where is it raining. You need kind of more than that. You need to understand how much damages there are. August and I were talking earlier, but you know, he was saying a landslide that happens to your neighbor doesn't necessarily happen to you. And then it's kind of ironic that there could be this communist effect, these automatically executing contracts. Does everyone get the same damages if we can't put in the data? Or if we can put in the data, do we have to have systems of just watching us at all times just to make sure we can capture and have AI systems applied to that data or whatever that then execute the contracts to the damages that are best fit? To some extent, it made me appreciate, as you were saying, August, the contracts we do have that do have this ambiguity that's quite useful and determining those specifics to the specific case and claim. Right, yeah, that example is really attractive because it's like at-risk individuals insuring each other, like farmers insuring each other internationally, which I think is very cool. If you want to provide a weather insurance, you need capital. And you want to be geographically remote from the person you're insuring because you're probably otherwise you'd be correlated with their risk and you didn't want to insure them. You'd rather insure yourself somewhere. So people can't insure each other in the same village. That, that doesn't work with value yeah. risk, right? You want to have a connection across the globe, either to some risk-neutral capital provider, which is probably how it's most likely to happen, or you could imagine a system where farmers insure each other like across the globe, because presumably somewhere it's going to rain, right? So they will have the money to pay for the others. But again, it is the downside being all of those things that you use a contract to feel more comfortable in. Like you don't have that. You don't have those guarantees and you don't have that protection, which some people can't afford that protection either way. So this for them maybe isn't like that much of a drawback. There's something embedded in any time that we try to encode a contract, which is that you are denying the kind of space that vagueness in words can provide for agreements and for facilitating cooperation. I think Jonas made a good point when he talked about contracts as we know them, the contracts course that we took in our first year of law school. Uh, is which All is, about that consideration. Yeah, a, a, lot of, a lot of vague terms there that are designed to be, I guess, frustrating in the moment, like good faith, like reason, and you're promising you'll do X in good faith. That really doesn't say a lot, except that it says that there's a common understanding that should a dispute arise, people will think this problem through and apply their intuitions about what is good. 
and what is faith. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We need lawyers. We need people to interpret. Oh, I like to hear that. We need, hear absolutely. That. We need people who interpret <laughs> conditions for certain types of contracts, maybe even for most types of contracts, right? Being able to be vague in a contract and still have it represent something is a super cool feature of the way we do contracts. Mm-hmm. We have, in a sense, we have this vague idea of what is just, which combines our moral values and the ones we wrote down into the law. And if we have a contract about something, we can kind of rely on the fact that Ultimately, it's going to be humans who figure out what, what's the right thing to do, right? And that's a feature in many ways. But it can also be a liability. If we talk about insurance, you don't want your insurance policy to be subject to uh, very good faith arguments and, uh, and then you're not getting paid and you're homeless. Ultimately, it should be up to the contracting parties to think about what type of contract solves their problem. And right now, the answer is most certainly going to be a traditional type of contract because the system isn't built out yet. But we know, we know that traditional contracts don't solve a bunch of problems big ones that we have to solve. Climate change is, in my opinion, the first and biggest one. This also has to do with what we talked about for a while, which was called the Oracle problem. And that is all about something Jonas really believes in, which is bringing blockchain technologies to the real world, connecting them with things that are actually real rather than derivatives of derivatives of fake things. One issue that you run into with all of this is when you're trying to translate information from the outside world onto the blockchain so that the smart contract can then make a decision, you of course have to make sure that that information is reliable and you have to agree on the same source of information. Does that limit the use cases to which you can expand? Because maybe, yeah, NASA weather data, we could all maybe agree that that is like fairly objective and easily understandable for everyone and and also sufficiently like binary to kind of accord with these conditions. But there's so much information out there that is like way more complex. So how can you expand beyond like these very narrow use cases? That's a very great question. The problem that you're mentioning is called the Oracle problem. Our platform is also aimed at solving this problem in a particular way. I think we first should talk about why that is a problem. Like, why can't a smart contract just directly talk to NASA? And that's a technical one. So you said we should go. Let's get into it. Let's go. (laughs) So what is a smart contract? Does it run somewhere? No, it runs everywhere. It runs on all computers. Everyone independently replicates the contract. And it's very important that the rules of the protocol are such that everyone can ultimately come to an agreement. There's an ultimate source of truth. And if you want to build a system like that, You can't just include in the protocol asking people to make some API request. Then everyone would have to get all the API keys for every provider. And so this is not part of the core blockchain protocol, how how you get information. And therefore, the blockchain itself is purely computational in a sense. Mm -hmm. It's really just like who has how much and are the mathematical conditions justified to have a certain person issue a certain transaction. And if, if everything's fine, include it in the transaction history and move forward. And so what a smart contract ultimately is, is just a piece of code that anyone can interact with on the blockchain. So now how do you get data on the blockchain? What a smart contract can do it is defines um, mathematical conditions for accepting certain types of inputs, right? And so what kind of conditions could you put in there to make sure that you're only allowing NASA data to ultimately determine whether somebody is going to be paid out? There's an answer to that, a simple one. It's called a cryptographic signature. It's a key building block of blockchains. Basically, everyone has what's called a public key, or it's also called an address. It's like the thing you can share with everyone that uniquely identifies you. And only you can basically put your stamp, your signature on a piece of data, and everyone can check that it must have come from you, from the person who holds a certain type of secret that matches or like belongs to this public key. This is called the private key. And only that person could have produced this stamp. And now this can uniquely, for example, if NASA signed their data, 
you could have a smart contract that has hard-coded into it the public key of NASA and verify that data. In principle, it shouldn't be a big problem, right? If we all agree on a certain source and they sign that data, it's all gonna be fine. The problem is though, the data is not signed yet, right? And it's gonna be hard to tell, to ask all these big companies that might have some data that we might wanna use. Maybe they don't wanna even share it with us, right? But even if they want it, getting the big corporation to like change what they're doing, how they're producing data, uh, is is not going to happen anytime soon, right? So we need to find a different solution. And for the NASA example with farming, it seems pretty great that there's a data source that will tell us the weather. And let's say that there was like torrential rains in this area. That might inform where a hypothetical smart contract would direct insurance funds for like farming insurance. But at the same time, that will affect different people differently. Think about all the disputes that happen in a car accident. Whose insurance pays? Whose fault was it? You have that kind of randomness when you're impacted by the weather. One plot of land might be already pretty structurally damaged and vulnerable to flooding. And maybe that land is unusable. While another farm has recently developed or something, was able to sustain it pretty well. How can you tell that difference without having even more nodes of data that can be trusted? There's something unnuanced about using satellite data to reallocate funds. That might be disturbing for people who want a more individualized experience. And maybe that's essential to feeling like you're actually compensated. Well, okay, yes, drawing on that, I was thinking through, like, what is the actual problem here? And one of Jonas's biggest points was that blockchain is good at addressing bad incentives or incentives that result in collective action problems. The fundamental problem of climate change is, is not that it's not in our interest to prevent it. It is. If you just sum up all the costs to humanity that are caused by climate change and you compare it to all the, or to the costs that it would cost to prevent it, it's, it's not even a question. It's so much cheaper to prevent climate change. Yeah. Economically, yeah. you don't have to care about nature, about ecosystems. You just care about money and profits. It's much cheaper to prevent climate change, right? So why don't we do it? Because the costs of preventing climate change and the, the costs of climate change don't fall into the same person. And that happens at the country level and it happens within a country. Between countries, we have countries who benefit from climate change, at least in the short term, if it stays in a moderate amount. Ultimately, if you just ramp up the temperature Russia, enough, Canada, right? Everything, you know, everything nice, is nice, fertile farmland. Yeah, permafrost uh, developing. It's that. got a benefit, right? Mm-hmm. You can actually estimate it by just looking at weather fluctuations and seeing is a year that's warmer than average. Is that a good year for this country or a bad year, right? And yeah. people have done this, and you get like this inverted U shape, basically like how good you're off depending on the temperature on the x-axis. And so a few countries are to the left of the peak, and those are the ones that would benefit if it got a little bit warmer, but only a little bit, you know, eventually everyone be- like suffers if it's getting warm enough. But a lot of countries, including the US and China, suffer if it gets warmer. So that's actually good news because those are the biggest emitters. So if they are also the biggest sufferers, <laughs> that reduces the incentive problem, but it's still there yeah, because right. for any ton of carbon that you don't emit, the benefit goes to everyone on earth but only you pay the cost. And so how do you solve this type of problem? With contracts. The contract that would solve all our problems forever and make everyone better off is everyone gets paid to switch to sustainable energy. Everyone gets paid to do that. Any difference in cost that they would have to face, they get paid. So they can just do it. Maybe they get some extra to have a nice incentive. And who's going to pay for it? Everyone who suffers from climate change, proportionally to how much they would suffer. And you can show this contract would make everyone better off. So why don't we do it? Well, let's start with countries, okay? Why don't we do that at a country level? What happens if a country doesn't pay? What do you do? You can't do anything. We have international law, maybe, but nobody really cares. The worst thing you can do is sanctions. I used to think sanctions don't help at all. Now I'm being proven a bit other. It's cool to see that sanctions at least seem to work to some degree. But the problem is now that we're already imposing them, how further do could we go? And how willing are we to do that for climate change yeah, versus, yeah. you know, when it comes to life and death scenarios? Oh, yeah, right? start sanctioning countries over like emitting, uh, <laughs> yeah. emitting CO2. Yeah, it's not going to happen, yeah. especially not if you if 
because this stuff would interfere with the existing uh, political dynamics, right? You have a lot of countries who are like partners, would they sanction each other? Hell no, they wouldn't, right? And suddenly everything falls apart. If only we had a type of contract that would be self-enforcing and then everyone could could be sure that if the money, if everyone just agrees to, to it in the first place, but as a smart contract, this could go very easily. And it sounds like blockchain might be best applied to institutions and ent entities that have to grapple with global issues. I'm thinking in particular about climate change. If we can guarantee that this country will implement these changes and we can find a way to <laughs> enforce that, there's a pool of money in a smart contract. And based on that smart contract, all these different actors have making these different agreements and the money's pooled. It's locked in there and they all have a guaranteed output, assuming they make these different changes within their social structures. It kind of creates this merging of contracts as we know them and contracts as the blockchain can make them, mm. where country X is very prone to this particular type of climate tragedy, or it's going to cost them this much to make these types of changes. And the net gain in the world will be this much. It seems to me, in theory, that we can put this into a smart contract. And as this country makes these changes, there can be payouts that compensate the cost for the gain. One thing that Jonas mentioned when he was talking about the feasibility of a climate change or carbon emissions reduction global smart contract is one thing you would obviously have to do is find some kind of method that everyone who partakes in this contract would agree on for calculating those damages. And there are ways, he said, that you can calculate, oh, how much is an abnormally hot year going to affect your country? And there's a handful of countries that will benefit in the short term. And he said that this was a scientific problem that would be technically difficult, but certainly possible. Let's say some Northern European country puts in some cash, their fair share, Let's hope that everyone agrees about the costs. Like that's a scientific challenge, but it's a solvable challenge. The relative cost for every country uh, under simple assumption that every, everyone can get behind. And I think I agree, except that this would just be calculating what are our damages right now for emissions that you release approximately. But I think that climate change implicates a lot of other values. There's obviously a historical justice component to climate change. And that might reasonably justify arguments for lower income countries who are affected by this, saying either we shouldn't have to pay as much for these insurance policies because of the historical damage done by other countries where there was no notion of compensation or that we should get more when the damage actually happens, yeah. not just to cover our costs or, or what, whatever scientific method determines that, but to make up for all of the historical, social, cultural damage done from climate degradation in the long term. How do you pay for like an extinct species? That seems like hard for me to fathom. It kind of sounds like we're poking holes, but really I think this has a lot of promise, mm -hmm. but there are obstacles that come from just looking at it purely from an economic perspective. I, I think Jonas recognizes that obviously capital desires to get high returns. And there are parts of the world where there's a ton of concentrated capital and your capital doesn't get as much returns there than if you were to invest it in a place with less capital. And so there's an obvious economic logic to redistributing wealth and bringing it to poorer countries. And in fact, there's this old economic theory of convergence where everyone thought that would just naturally happen because it made economic sense. What are the kinds of contracts that would benefit from the unique properties that blockchain can provide. And just as a high-level overview, I think it is contracts that happen across borders, especially when you think about connecting the world's capital, which is primarily in like high-income countries, to 
the places in the world where the highest returns to capital would be, and that is in developing countries. But so far, this hasn't happened. This odd fact, observation that existed in economics, like everyone is aware of it for 50 years, that was the reason why basically low-income countries are not a problem. It will solve itself. That's what economists like to think. I have a model that tells me that this shouldn't be true, and so everything will be okay. Right? But if fast forward, um, the problem still persists. And obviously that is because it is terribly hard to make these kinds of connections that you would need to, to give a loan to somebody who really needs it and not somebody who's pretending to be one. And so he recognizes that there are all these blocks to transferring wealth, to trusting that you can invest in the right parties and that agreements will be enforced. And blockchain does have potential there. But there are also all these moral considerations that come with transferring wealth or the distribution of wealth. It might be hard, or we would have to certainly keep that in mind as we're creating these contracts themselves. I think it really adds to the point of, and not to get too promo-y, where the periphery comes in here. That's kind of what he was getting at as well. We need not so many technologists, but people who are thinking about these actual problems and how these technologies can actually address just some of the inherent incentive problems that arise here. And we're not going to unlock that potential that is, I think, clear as day with this technology. We're not going to unlock it without taking a broader look at what we're trying to solve and how it can be solved. It's even harder to really capture what needs to be solved without having everyone in society really grappling with how this technology can be applied. Mm. You know, right now, <laughs> for all intents and purposes, it's mostly Westerners with capital and resources, in no small part due to the digital divide and access contributing to these types of conversations. And like, of course, we're going to miss things. There's things that we're not going to see. There's easy fixes, just easy problems and glaring problems we're not even beginning to tap into. Mm. That's going to inherently hinder our ability to unlock this potential. Mm. Uh, you mm. know, and, and I think he's like totally correct in just identifying the need for people thinking about incentives and, you know, call back to an episode coming with Mogali, who mm. is kind of doing that work. She's not a technologist. She is someone who's just stepping into like this blockchain field. She was called to it after she did her undergrad. She has like, and we'll talk about that in that episode, but this company that is thinking about how they can use blockchain and cryptocurrencies to address a problem in nonprofits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that definitely echoes Jonas's main crux, which is that the reason that this hasn't solved like as many problems as it could have by now is because everybody thinks that smart contracts don't apply to the real world because the blockchain is like focused inward. Like the blockchain makes contracts about like things that happen on the blockchain, like tokens. <laughs> yeah. I feel like the big problem of crypto as we speak is the space is focused inward because by default, anything that happens on the blockchain is disconnected from the real world. And so the first contracts that happened were contracts about contracts, contracts about tokens. And so the blockchain world right now is basically just contracts about tokens, about contracts, about tokens. And then let's tokenize that one into an NFT and then like fungibilize it again. You know, that, this stuff is literally happening, right? And, and this is no value added. So if you focus it outward, then yeah, it's more accessible. It has more concrete applications. And I think that that's definitely something that we see also as a periphery goal. Yeah, I think there's two levels to this. One is we should decide to, uh, to use Mogli's term, to create a door, to open that door into crypto and blockchain and all of its applications for as many people as we can, especially people who have a stake here. That's something I think Jonas definitely agrees with. But at the same time, once we start to talk about these trade-offs, we should make sure that that whole conversation has open doors as well, essentially. Mm -hmm. That, for example, one thing that Jonas seemed pretty confident about and it seems to make sense to me too, is that replacing centralized institutions 
whether they're providing digital services or platforms or just products, replacing those with decentralized blockchain-based services will always have downsides. Centralization is way more efficient. And if you're talking about a platform, a social media platform, the user experience is going to suck, at least at first. I think a lot of times it's totally fine if things are centralized. For example, Netflix, YouTube. Nowadays, like we start to get into this difficult decision of having uh, platforms decide on censorship. And you can view it as a centralized service, actually, that they're providing when they do it that. And if you do it that way, then you would want to opt for a centralized platform. But maybe you view it as they're locking you out of certain information that you want. And then you might want to prefer to go for a decentralized thing. But you'll always make a trade-off because every time you go for decentralized, the user experience is going to be worse, at least in the foreseeable future. Uh, there's no way you can compete with the speed, the cheap, like how cheap it is if you just need to have one computer that does everything versus uh, replicating everything across thousands of machines. Now, we may feel one way about that. But really, I think that there's a lot of different concerns, interests, and emotions that'll be brought up if suddenly people realize that their user experience on various platforms they use for their livelihoods are suddenly hurt for in the interest of other values. And so it's a diverse conversation in terms of one, just looking at blockchain. And the, and the other is when we're talking about trade-offs, trade-offs for whom? And how important is that to us versus to everyone? And so I thought that Jonas was very cognizant of the fact that one, centralization has its benefits. You don't always want to get rid of it. Second, you can have centralization on the blockchain. It's not inevitable that using fact, blockchain I mean, he, he Not only did he, he thought it would be best to have a centralized blockchain. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, for insurance companies, why not expand their markets? There's no guarantee that the applications that, build, that you build on top of blockchain are decentralized. Right? You can build a very centralized system on top of a blockchain. You just can't go the other way around. If you start with a centralized system, you can't build anything decentralized on top, but you can very much do so vice versa. And like when a contract can be a single point of centralization in a sense, because it's at the center of the economic actors, but because it's following rules that are enforced by the protocol, it's not a trust that you have in like a centralized actor. You have a trust in the decentralized system. But sure, presumably if, if you control the capital, it's yours and you can decide what, in which kind of thing you want to put it. And if you're a big centralized actor, you can definitely sell insurance policies and you should. Because actually, I mean, frankly, I don't get why insurance companies are not trying to think how to expand their market into these domains where people wouldn't buy insurance from you otherwise. Basically, even centralized institutions, even traditional institutions can see this technology as giving them a unique feature to sell to customers. They can be centralized, but ultimately what they sell to a buyer, to a person who wants to get insurance, is a promise that is self-enforcing. That has nothing to do with them. You don't have to trust the centralized actor if they say you're something on the blockchain. And then we started talking about why are big institutions so averse to smart contracts, yeah. to blockchain? Afi asked if there was something conspiratorial going on. I know you want to get it as a conspiracy. I don't think there's a big conspiracy. Honestly, I think the reason most companies are not really going big on crypto is because if you just look at what's going on right now, it looks like a lot of speculation and it, it's just not very enticing. <clears throat> you don't want to be associated necessarily with Apes, ape pictures, you know, and, and scams. I'm not sure I'm convinced it wasn't a conspiracy. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, I think it is, is at least there's a common pattern of recognizing even if there's a ton of opportunity here tomorrow or in five years, maybe not in 15. Maybe in 15, it's the end game for you as a centralized institution, a gatekeeper who essentially you just sell your gatekeeping ability. If you're a company like that, where you're just a middleman, I think it's actually probably reasonable to just kind of wish that this technology would go away, despite its benefits to you and to everyone else. Can we pivot to something? Yeah. That this pivot. 
episode also made me think about. So I was thinking about the fact that on his website, he's like, these smart contracts are easy to make. Like anybody can do it, which is great because people can't afford lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. I think what's what's special about the technology that we're going to talk about today is really you don't need to do all of that. You don't need to be at Stanford. In fact, most people are not coming from big schools. What's, what's really exciting here is you can at home on your laptop come up with a, an idea for a, a contract, an application, and simply by shouting it out there in the world, hitting the play button, you know, and submitting it to the blockchain, suddenly it's real. That is a really exciting feature of this technology. Technology always is about making people more powerful in certain ways. But this is a technology that really empowers people who don't necessarily start with anything, right? And who don't necessarily have any connections. They can just directly start with it. As a law student, there's part of me that's like a little nervous about that. But then there's also part of me that's like, this is good because the legal institution forever have been insulating themselves and like requiring all these barriers to entry and that stinks. However, to play devil's advocate, I'm a little skeptical that this actually increases access to people because I think it just requires a different type of specialization. How truly easy does does this sound? And this is coming from his website. Open contracts are not just easy to use, they're easy to develop too. You write the Ethereum contract logic in Solidity and write a little Python script which computes if some event happened according to some website snapshot or API request. By including a few additional lines of code, you define that users can call a contract function only with the results from executing your Python script. And our protocol will ensure this behind the scenes. I can't do that. Can you guys do that? I say, I you lost me. <laughs> <laughs> you lost me like two sentences deep. In a perfect world, all the next generation is comfortable with Python. It's like a second language, whatever. But with the digital divide as it stands now, this isn't a more accessible route. Mm. I mean, I was thinking that even with the Ukraine example, just he mentioned there's a high influx of crypto aid going to Ukraine than institutional aid. People in countries with high inflation rates, where the government is starting to print money, those are the first adopters who really benefit from this. This is like generating real utility for people who are going through really hard times. And right now in Ukraine, we see the same thing. Fun fact, uh, I think the donations that went went the Ukrainian government's way since the war through crypto by far exceed those of the UN. And like the UN has a couple million dollars that they sent there. The crypto donations exceed that. And this is just grassroots stuff, right? This is just regular people who can just make now make a transaction directly to a foreign government. This, this wouldn't be possible with traditional technology, not in the same way. I'm not really sure if it has much of a bearing on why crypto should proliferate, but it didn't seem like it addressed broader inequities that it seems like we're trying to resolve. How can I send crypto to a country that has no Wi-Fi? Mm. How, can, how yeah. can they transact? And that's not just a country that has a Wi-Fi. That's a ton of Americans. In our Digital Divide episode, we talk about how a shocking number, and I'm not going to say the number because I'll get it wrong right now, but a shocking number of Americans have got awful access to reliable and consistent internet speeds. Mm. That skepticism, yeah, it's, it's there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, according to the FCC, it's uh, somewhere in the ballpark of 10 million. Wow. According to the Microsoft, it's more like 100 million. Yeah, yeah, that's that's 25% <laughs> of Americans. Yeah. That's in America. We're, we're the richest country mm-hmm. in the world, mm-hmm. allegedly, something like that. What about countries that don't even have broadband internet infrastructure? Mm. Yeah, I mean, and in many ways, the legal profession, law firms, law schools are exactly the kind of gatekeeping for the sake of gatekeeping institution that might feel threatened by blockchain. And maybe in the future will feel like this might be a serious problem or at least a challenge that the legal system will have to adapt around. Because lawyers are barred to, I mean, like they're certified, not like prevented, to directly interact with the judiciary, with the state. One can understand why there's some gatekeeping there. 
I suppose. But at the same time, they've extended that. He's good. (laughs) (laughs) But they've extended that to to like, oh, we're the only ones who can do work with contracts, which are just between private parties. The state is not necessarily involved. And we like to cover that kind of work and also should actually end up having to be resolved by the state. We're there as well. This seems kind of arbitrary, especially when the knowledge, as we've discussed, people can do it. It's not like there's like some kind of magical aura at law schools that enables you to understand this. Uh, don't expose our secrets. Like there that. is, I haven't found it. <laughs> I'm like, um, I'm pretty magical. I have lawyer legal things. Yeah, but the technical knowledge you need to create a smart contract, even the one on open contracts, obviously that's a hurdle as well. Mm-hmm. But we don't have this huge multi institutional apparatus to create this aura around the knowledge. And also to actually prove that you can do it with technical skills, with coding skills, you do it. And that's the proof you need here. You know, you may have two identical people, same legal knowledge, but one is a lawyer. The other is not because they're not in law school or they didn't get a degree or they didn't pass the bar. And so Kim Kardashian knows just as much about the law, literally, as we do. (laughs) Literally, I could like, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to point. It's certainly possible. Yeah. I'm not sure I would have passed maybe bar. Hmm. <laughs> I, I certainly you am know? not in a position to take the bar right now. But she can't be a lawyer. At least someone else she can, I guess, because she passed it. But like that barrier right there. No, she passed the, the no, no. She passed like the mini bar. Are we talking about Kim baby Kardashian? Bar. Baby bar, yeah, yeah. She practices baby yeah. law. I mean, I don't think Kim Kardashian's like the like best example of in a, in a lacking access. She's but, breaking through the gatekeepers. It's but, amazing. But the point of just there's this barrier of needing to pass this test despite the equal knowledge. Yeah. There was a time where all these barriers made sense because information was scarce and also elites like to monopolize resources, which is not rational, but also it made sense in a certain way to figure out who had the best skills and prowess to work with the law. It was really hard to tell. So we use these crude measures. I think that with smart contracts, it turns out these skills and facilities are actually far more distributed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's probably true. You know what actually also reminded me of law school about this when Jonas was talking about the problem of mining um, and pointless work? Anyone can propose a new block. It's just very, very hard to do to find one that is valid because there's an extra difficulty built into the protocol that says a new block is only valid if you also solve this little puzzle where you can't do better than just randomly guessing new numbers, new solutions, and until you find one that checks out. So now there's this competition between everyone uh, about who gets proposed the next block because every time you do, you get rewarded in Bitcoin. Right. right? And that's mining. That's mining. Right. And those are the miners. And now the, the rule is the longest valid chain counts. So if there's one invalid transaction, my block will never get to be part of the history. So even if I get a Bitcoin on that block, I can't spend it. And so now everyone has the incentive to only allow valid things. Everyone has the incentive to only focus on one chain, the longest, because if you just start building on a shorter one and everyone else picks the longest one, they'll just build the blockchain much faster and you'll never be able to catch up with yours. And so suddenly everyone can agree on the same blockchain. But the problem, of course, is yeah, everyone is solving this very hard problem. That's literally pointless. Like, it doesn't solve a real problem other than just to create a decentralized blockchain. And I was, like, working on a research paper at the time, and I was like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I love how Jonas described the proof-of-work math problem that every miner has to conduct to add to the ledger and make Bitcoin or, or another cryptocurrency. It was, like, a totally pointless problem. It is just a random yeah. exercise. It doesn't contribute <laughs> knowledge at all to anyone. It's You're creating a random number out of an infinite set of random numbers. Well, on that note, it's just like, it's a pointless problem. Something our conversations with Jonas and also the season in general have been making me think a lot about it, just how we structure our society fundamentally. A lot of these problems are born out of norms and how our societies are structured as a general matter. 
And we often look, at least especially us, as people who love tech, we often use these problems to justify more innovation and more research into these areas that, if you're looking at it from a broader incentives point, help someone make more money. So it's starting to make me like really question the push for technological advancement at all when we're trying to solve social problems that society has created. Where should we actually be looking? Should we be looking at technology or should mm. we be looking at other cultures and other histories mm. that didn't have these problems and yeah. see how they structured the societies that got rid of them because they exist. They're there. Yeah. And they have, frankly, their own technologies. And we just choose as a culture not to recognize them as such. This goes to the, even our own older technologies, like traditional real contracts. Yeah. Uh, you know, like yeah. that is yeah. a very sophisticated and nuanced tool. And we shouldn't take its features for granted simply because a new technology has very novel traits. Maybe if we weren't raised in such a litigious society, the lack of ambiguity in these smart contracts might not be like we might not think that's a problem. Like mm. we might just like good faith is just like being a good person and it doesn't have to be like any more sketchy than that. But also the fact that we don't always agree or our notions change about what it means to be good. Yeah. You know that, as he said, it's a feature, not a bug. Or bugs are features. They tend to be the same, at least when it comes to these very broad level social technologies. But this also yeah. touches upon, I think, what was Jonas's method for recognizing the potential technologies and then actually making them into applications, which was that he starts with problems. Find the problem first. Make sure you yeah. have that and make sure you understand it. For example, the incentives and collective action problems around climate change. I love it that we start with an example rather than with a technology because most people start with a technology that's how we've been taught and that's why like the whole space is focused on technologies but let's talk about the solutions that we can actually get. I don't think there's too many people in crypto but I do think the whole space hasn't figured out yet how to really generate a value to a broad audience like yeah. a mass market. You should consider spending more time on crypto if the problems you care about have a lot to do with incentives. If you feel like there's maybe a way forward in which everyone would be better off if we just acted in a certain way that we wouldn't otherwise, but if everyone does it, then suddenly it makes a lot of sense, right? If you're interested in these kinds of problems, then this is a very potentially powerful thing. And then look at the technology and see if the traits, the value adds of the technology fit with the problem itself. We used to have contracts before. We, we are able to solve these types of problems before. And we solved them, but there are a lot of problems still left. And you can try solving them with the existing means, and you should, but uh, we have this very new tool that has very new properties. And in some ways, it comes from a totally different place. But in many ways, you can combine the two. They can interact with each other, build on top of each other. And so if you're interested in these kinds of things, then I would start to pay attention. But I would keep your problem in mind. It's much more important to understand the incentive problem around the thing you, you might want to solve first, and then think about how does crypto maybe help. And I feel like a lot of times people do it the other way around. That's how he believes that we can achieve some kind of real world connection. When it comes to especially technologies like crypto, which seem just totally detached from the average person's life. And that kind of method, I think I want to try to follow it because it consciously avoids and pushes back on, I think, the notion in the larger blockchain or crypto community that this is a technology that can solve, I don't know, everything. Put the cart before the horse. Yeah. yeah. You know, it'll save democracy or something. I think that's something that we reject when we hear that blockchain is libertarian because it implies it can solve these epic political problems. Mm -hmm. And yet it still does have that potential. It's both true and not true. But we just have to make sure that the problem fits this libertarian tendency or decentralizing tendency. It won't always. Yeah. And small steps can be good too. I don't, it is sort of a weird thing that we expect of technology, this ability to just literally change everything. Like why? And also like centralization took a long time to develop. That is in a way technological. 
because it is a method of organizing and to have a centralized yet functioning and more or less non-corrupt institution is a very hard thing to do. We should not sacrifice those on a bet. Wow. I think we have once again ended with more questions than answers. I'm not uh, the periphery with. Hopefully something to think about and maybe all of our blockchain researchers and innovators as well. Let's see. Are we good? Are we done? Have we wrapped it up? Should we tell them to go follow our Patreon if they like our content, our YouTube, our TikTok, our Instagram? It's the periphery pod or podcast basically everywhere. And you can send us an email at theperfectpodcast at gmail.com and you can submit a voicemail question to any of us to our email framing an episode and maybe we'll try to if not answer it confuse you more Mm. (laughs) (laughs) yeah go support and go learn python